Hi. All right. We are in John chapter four today. All you belly floppers, well played. Well played. Where's, uh, where's my girl at that got the 10? <laughs> How are we doing? Are you crying on the inside? Because it looked real painful. You crushed it. Good job. You guys did great. Uh, so we have a question that we're kind of bringing to bear tonight. We talked night one or morning one. What is the truth about God? Can truth even be known? Is everything true? Is nothing true? What do we do with this idea when Jesus claims to be the way, the truth, and the life? In a culture where we've all said, whatever you feel is true is true. Whatever the majority votes is going to be true. Jesus comes in and says, I have rested all truth on one unchanging an infinite thing, myself. Jesus doesn't claim to be able to point to truth. He doesn't, like Buddha, claim to know four noble truths. He doesn't, like Nietzsche, say that there is no truth. He takes all those opinions, points at himself, and he says, truth is embodied. It's me now. I am the truth. And when he does that, he puts everyone else on blast. He puts everything else on blast. And he doesn't negotiate. He doesn't sit there and for those who are offended, he doesn't go, oh, okay, maybe you misunderstood me. He stands firm in it. And so a lot of us, I think me growing up too, the story of Jesus went like this. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, joy to the world, the Lord is come. And then 30 years happened and then everyone murdered him, right? <laughs> it's like, what happened? When you, when you do a Sunday school Passover version of Jesus's life, it's confusing, right? You start in Luke 2, right? It's, it's the little kid in like the fake angel's wings, which by the way, angels don't have wings. Sorry to ruin the Bible for you. But anyway, how many of you guys, when you were a kid and you were in the pageant, you had wings, that you were the angel and you had that little like speech impediment because you were a little kid, right? You just... It was the best. Every year, it's the best. The kid in the Christmas project, he's like, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire woman world. This was the first census that could be by Quirinius, the governor of Assyria. Everyone says, and he just goes in this whole speech and this whole rant. And you're like, this guy's great. Jesus seems fantastic. Angels come in, they're shouting, glory. Right? And you're like, Christmas! And you're like, this guy's birth is rocks. When he was born, I get presents. That makes no sense, but I'll take the candy. And you like, you pass through life. And then we get these little candy canes because Jesus was a candy cane. I don't know, but here's some candy, right? And don't forget about Easter because they put the cross in the rabbit hole. And so that's why we give each other Easter eggs. No, I, no one knows. We just like give them the traditions. And then he gets older, and then here's what happens. He sees people who can't walk, and he's like, not anymore. And they stand up, and he sees a woman who's, a guy who's dead. He's like, yeah, you stop being dead. And he's like, oh, you got it, right? And he's like, hey, what's wrong with you? I can't see. He's like, <laughs> he spits on his eyes, and now that guy can see. Like, these are the Bible stories, right? And then he's, as he's walking around, people are like, we're hungry. He's like, oh, really? How about 5,000 people fed? Oh, you don't have enough wine at your party? I've created 180 gallons of the best wine you've ever had. Jesus is like the ultimate rock star party animal. He's like the coolest dude. He's just like walking around like, what's the matter? You're out of wine? How about 180 gallons? What's your problem? My son's sick. Not anymore. 
What's the matter? This storm's scary. Oh, yeah, check this out. Storm, knock it off. And it stops. <laughs> and then one thing leads to another. And he's crucified, a traitor's death on a cross between two villains, and people are chanting, humiliating him. They strip him naked, they nail him to a cross, and they all mock him as he descends into death. It's a confusing story if you don't read the text. It's a confusing story when a culture's Mr. Rogers, everyone's like, kill him, right? I Think about the nicest person you know and how much effort it would take to get them crucified. It's not easy. I've tried, right? You ever have someone in your youth group, like the nerdy Bible kid who like always knows the answer? You're like, Jeff, we get it. You watch VeggieTales all the time. <laughs> Grow up. <laughs> you're sus, okay? You're just, you're just sus. Anyway. That's not the story. Turns out when you read the text, by the time you get about halfway through it, everyone goes, jeez, this guy's offensive. He took every expectation. If, if you read the Old Testament and you had uh, an idea of the expectation of the Messiah, and as you're telling stories to one another before Jesus comes, you're, you're starting your stories with this Hebrew phrase, uh, when Messiah comes, right? That's, this is what the Jews would constantly remind each other. They're under oppression. The Babylonians take them over. The Assyrians take them over. Now they're under a vassal state in Rome. The Egyptians have already enslaved them. Like everyone in the ancient cultures at one point was in rule over the Israelites, over the Jews over the Hebrews, and all they had was the hope of the Messiah that was to come. And they thought, and when Messiah comes, when Messiah comes, he's going to overthrow our oppressors. He's going to fix every system that was broken. He's going to solve all my issues. And if we have any problems in our society, he's going to come and make them right. And we are going to have our day in court, for we are God's people. And here comes Messiah, born in a stable, surrounded by feces in the ancient Near East. Confusing, no doubt, not just to anyone, to a virgin 13-year-old girl named Mary. You didn't know that? Now you do. She was probably younger than most of you girls in here, okay? And she has an angel show up to her, who doesn't have wings, by the way, and says, you are going to give birth to Hamashiach Remember the one we've been talking about? It's going to be you. And you know what she thinks? What are you talking about? Imagine any of you, right? You grow up in a religious town, right? And you've, you're a virgin and everyone's like, oh, she's the, she's like the, um, she's the woodworker's daughter. She's super kind. She's, she's pregnant. What? Oh, it's okay because it's God's child. Don't worry, she didn't actually have sex with anyone. She's just impregnated in some divine announcement. Oh, great. And not like in the palace. We're talking about in Nazareth. In this place that is made fun. Like I grew up in Bakersfield. That's like Nazareth, right? <laughs> Any of you guys from Bakersfield? Any of you guys ever driven through Bakersfield? If you've driven through Bakersfield, you have at least four years off your life because the smog and the pollution is so dense that it's like you've been smoking for 35 years. 
And uh, right, every time I go anywhere, I live in San Diego now. They're like, where are you from? I grew up in Oklahoma until I was 12, and I moved to Bakersfield until I was 18. Everyone's like, what, 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 why? <laughs> why? That's Nazareth. He's in this podunk town. He's born in a stable to a, a reject father, Joseph, who's not religious. He's, he's not part of the elite. He's not well-learned. He's, he's a carpenter, but he's a carpenter in the ancient Near East. You know how many trees there are? Not a lot of wood. So he's probably actually a quarry worker. So Jesus grew up learning how to work with rocks. He probably built houses out of rocks. He, he, was, he worked in quarries. That's probably what he did. He was a tecton, the Greek says. It means he worked with his hands. For 30 years, for 30 years, he did nothing. He didn't like make a dove come back from the dead. He didn't like turn any of his enemies into snakes. For 30 years, he learned to be a quarry worker. And then for three years, he revealed himself as the Messiah. He said, I am the one you've been waiting for. This five foot five, disenfranchised, marginalized, from Bakersfield, unattractive, nothing that we would behold him, Isaiah tells us, and he walks around and claims to be God himself. And every system set up at that time, Jesus comes after. And it's different. Like I've seen some of you guys around here that it looks like you've been working out since you were born, right? <laughs> and like your, your sleeves can't contain it, so you rip them off. You're like, I just, I can't. Got your bang energy drinks walking around like, is there a gym here? Can we, do a, can we have gym free time? Yeah! Yeah! Liberty High football rules! Bro, you win. Get out of the gym. Like, your neck's gone. Stop, okay? You did it. Why would you ever need to be that strong? This isn't the 1400s. We're not going to get in a sword fight. Just in case. Take the weekend off, Frederick. Have an apple. <laughs> Protein or bust. Anyway. I didn't offend anyone, because the ones who are like that aren't paying attention, they're like, whatever, man. Whatever. <laughs> Want to see my pecs dance? I can't do it. <laughs> Anyways. It's like Jesus is this offensive, massive disappointment. And then in the middle of that, the things that he says, they're not kosher. They're not polite. It's, it, and they're, they're offensive. What we're going to do today is we're going we're gonna to kind of zoom in on Jesus' life and ministry. And, and the question I kind of want to leave you with is what if we're in the same boat as all these different people groups? What if we had an expectation? Here's what Jesus is going to do in my life. Here's what Jesus is going to afford me. Here's how Jesus is going to benefit me. If I start following Jesus, I can promise that I'm going to get X, Y, and Z. My life is going to become simpler. It's going to become uh, more filled with blessing. It's going to be, my life is going to be better as I follow Jesus. And some of us, we have made up this idea of who God is. Uh, last time I was in Israel, you go to this place called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's where Jesus was crucified uh, and then buried. And in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, 
they divide up the church into different regions based on different churches. So there's like the African church wing, the Asian church wing, like the Orthodox Jewish church wing, the Roman Catholic Orthodox church wing. And in each of these church wings, you can go in and because they all want a piece of the pie, you can go there and, and go and see kind of the way that they set it up. And some of them are like the, like the Russian Orthodox ones, like super gaudy, like gold everywhere, jewelry hanging from the ceiling. This is kind of their picture of God because their picture of what's most important in their culture, at least historically speaking, has kind of been this, this king with all his possessions and all his jewels and all these rubies. This is who God is. And then you go to other ones, cultures that are more meek or, or more shame culture, and, and you see a much more reserved version of Jesus. And, and each of them have like stained glass pictures of Jesus. And when you go to the like Scandinavian church wing, like for all the Germans, like my people, and you go and you look at what Jesus looks like, guess what the stained glass portrays Jesus as? German. Like, I'm not a scholar, but I walked up and I'm like, Jesus looks like me? I'm pretty sure that's not the case. <laughs> like, I'm not here to like, but if you're, if you're white like I am, and you think when you get to heaven, Jesus is going to have like blonde hair and blue eyes, like, it's not going to happen, you know? Like, I don't know a lot in this world, but that's not the case, you know? But for them, we want to make a Jesus that's relative to who we are. Believe it or not, then you go to the African section and guess what color Jesus is? He's black. You go to the Asian section, looks Asian. We create Jesus so much in our mind to look and think and act like us. And, and here's the concession. Here's why this is important. Because if you actually thought about it, we are far less interested in the true character of Jesus and we're far more interested in how alike or how aligned we can make him to our will and our purposes. I love how one theologian said it. God made man in his image and we've been returning the favor ever since. God made man in his image, and now our, what we do every day is we return the favor. We want God to think like us, look like us, act like us, perceive the world like us, answer prayers like we would, which is why so many of us were frustrated with God. There's a, there's a verse, I think it's, it's, the, it's the least believed verse in the scriptures. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9 says this. God is speaking to us as mankind, and he says, My ways are not your ways, declares the Lord, nor are my thoughts your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are greater than yours, declares the Lord. We, it's poetic, it's baroque, it's fancy, no one believes it. The reason I know that is because when God's intervention in our life or God's movement in our life or the way that our life plays out, when it doesn't fit my will be done, we immediately look at God and we go, excuse me, what's wrong with you? Where have you been? What are you doing? Why don't you fix? Why don't you change? And we can't possibly perceive that God has a will, an intention, a direction, or an end goal that's different than mine. Now, we're willing to, 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 to secede the fact that God is, he's got superpowers, right? Like God's, he's crazy, man. He's, he can like turn things into other things. So he's got that going for him, but he must think like me. And he would respond to prayer requests the way that I would. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we've made God in our own image. And when you read the text, this is exactly what he gets tried for and crucified for. Everyone goes, oh, when Messiah comes, we know exactly what he's going to be like. And Jesus spends story after story here in the book of John. And over and over again, he sets up, who did you think I was going to be? 
And then like Chuck Norris, he like drop kicks it, like boom, gone. And then he looks at the culture that he just offended and he says, am I still God now? What if I'm not who you thought I was? Wow, am I still God now? Oh, Jesus is going to make sure that everything's good and groovy. Boom, am I still God now? And you don't ever watch Jesus negotiate. Let me walk you through some of these things really quick. We're going to go kind of in a speed round. We're going to get through like three chapters today. We should spend 16 weeks doing this, but we're going to spend like 20 minutes, okay? Here we go. John chapter 4. Hold on to your butts. Here we go. That's from Jurassic Park, the original. Samuel L. Jackson, Jeff Goldblum, good times. Here we go. I'm tired. I feel like when you do three high kicks and you're tired, it's time. You know what I mean? Like, it's time to start working out more. Okay. I'm with you tomorrow in the gym. None of you sissy sallies are invited. Just us. Am I right? I just pulled a muscle. <laughs> Ow! Okay. I'm not a piece of meat, okay? I feel like Jasmine from Aladdin. I am not surprised to be one. Dad, I told you to wait in the truck. Here we go. John chapter 4. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Okay, so the Pharisees are starting to lean in and going, whoa, who is this? What's this new upstart? What's this guy doing? Verse 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria. Because we're in a modern context, that didn't do anything for you, right? When I said that, the Jewish rabbi, the God of the universe, God in Abad, putting on flesh, the incarnate son went to Samaria, and you understood the Jewish context that rabbis are purebloods, right? Think Hogwarts. Rabbis are supposed to be purebloods, purely Jewish. You did all the right things. You wore all the right clothes. You went to all the right festivals. You stayed out of all the wrong places. The worst place you could possibly find yourself, the most anti-religious, the most offensive place a Jew could find themselves is in Samaria. You see, what happened is this group called the Babylonians came in and took over Jerusalem. When they did, they took all the Israelites to be slaves, except the ones who were not good enough to even cut slavery. The, the, the ones that were they, were, they were, they could be deformed, they could be um, insolent, they could, be, they could have some kind of a disorder. They actually left them back in the city after they tore down the walls and they said, we don't even want you, we don't want you to be Babylonians. We don't want your mark on our people. So they left a group of Jews in Jerusalem that weren't good enough to be slaves. Well, these people had no way to protect themselves. The walls had been taken down. So the foreign territories, the foreign enemies came in, the pagan nations would come in and they would come and pillage and they would take over and to uh, for self-preservation the women who were still who were st- who stayed behind who weren't worthy to be slaves would intermarry with these pagan nations to, to protect themselves and their offspring were called Samaritans so in a Jewish mindset we all were taken to captivity you were left in Jerusalem to preserve the Jewish line you intermarried with pagans and then the Samaritans set up their own religious system they created a new temple had a new way of worshiping so in a Jew's mind and I'm quoting a Talmud right here I'm quoting an ancient Near Eastern rabbi the best Samaritan is a dead 
Samaritan. It was deep, intrinsic religious hatred. It was racism to the nth degree. Everyone hated Samaritans. You could spit on them, you could mock them, and if the situation were right, you could kill them and not even be accused of anything. Jews hated Samaritans. So if I told you that the king of the universe became man, was a Jewish rabbi, everyone revered and looked up to him, and then he went to Samaria, you all in the first century would have gone, what? What in the heck, man? What do you mean? This is the beginning of Jesus going, boom. You thought I was going to stay in Jerusalem, didn't you? Oh, man, you thought I was going to fit in your box. Like the God of the universe is going to fit in some Amazon shipping box. That's not what I came for. Boom, and everyone, their ears perk up. They're like, oh, I'm interested in this story. What's Jesus doing in Samaria? Oh, I'll bet he's come to condemn them. Like Jonah, he came to say, here comes your judgment as he's walking through. (laughs) That's not what happens. Now we had to go through Samaria, so we came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Uh, you can go here to this day. This place still exists. You can stand right here. It's phenomenal. It's one of the most well-preserved archaeological sites. And Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. The Bible wants us to know it's noon. This is in the ancient Near East. It is the same line of longitude that uh, uh, Bakersfield is on, okay? Same one. Think ancient Near East, middle of the summer, noon. Bakersfield, middle of the summer, noon. Is it chilly? No. In this culture, it was the woman's job to go and get water in the morning and at night. But you would do so in this in-between, like dusk and dawn. You didn't want it to be totally dark because robbers and thieves and things, but you also didn't want it to be fully bright outside because it was super hot. So all the women who were of good standing would go during dusk and dawn. If you were an anathema, if you were an outsider, you were marginalized, destitute, rejected, you were forced to go in the middle of the heat of the day because none of the other women wanted to go with you. Here's what we see. We don't just see a Samaritan. We see a rejected, depreciated, less than marginalized Samaritan woman. And she's at a well. And in ancient Near Eastern cultures, a well always brought this picture of romance. Since it was the woman's job to go get water... If you were a young bachelor, my man, you would go stand by the well and you just almost had this steady flow of women that were coming to get. So you would sit there and you'd be like, have you got, like, get the triceps going? Like, oh, hey, you got a big, this is a bucket. Yeah, you're going to get some water. Nice, 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 nice. Uh, which way is Jerusalem? Is it, you know what I mean? Like you just like, <laughs> right? Like Lloyd Christmas, you just hang by the bar. You put out the vibes, you know, just let it. And this was the well. So if I told you that a rabbi found himself at a well with a woman, you would immediately go, scandal, scandal. He's got his picture. Yeah, okay. Don't hyperventilate. (gasps) You see, if if you're in the audience of this story, you're going, what in the heck? Who is this guy? This story gets so much better. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. What is the Bible trying to make sure that we understand? They are alone. They're alone at the well. The Samaritan woman, the heat of the day, no one else around, romance setting. The Samaritan woman said to him, 
This is like all you can say when you're so shocked. You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman, right? Even she was shocked. How can you ask me for a drink? Parenthetically, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have turned around and asked him for a drink and I would have given you ma'im ha'im, living water. I would have given you living water. Say it with me, ma'im ha'im. Ma'im chaim. Yeah, yeah, a little guttural. Ma'im chaim. Okay, living water. Okay? It was, it was water that was able to satiate, to satisfy. Here's what it says. Sir, I, you, you love the way that Jesus takes this. He's like, you thought we were going to have a normal interaction. And then Jesus goes all Jesus juke on it, right? He's like, hey, could I have some water? She's like, um, I don't know. Actually, if you knew who I was, you would have asked me for a drink and I would have given you living water. And she almost like skirts over it. She's like, okay. Sir, here's her response. You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. So he's like, I've got the power to give you water that will never run out. And she's like, well, then where's your bucket, right? It's like, did you, that was not the part that was supposed to shock you, Right? and I'm gonna do it without a bucket. It's like, bro, she, he just claimed to have the power to, whatever, okay? Uh, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, oh, I love this response. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. He's speaking about something deeper, right? Th this conversation in, in Jesus' eyes is not about H2O. This is superseded that a long time ago. The, the way that the, the, the text starts is Jesus had to go to Samaria. Let me ask you, if you're God, do you have to do anything? No, this is called the divine imperative, which meant the father has called him. The father in heaven has called Jesus, the son, being led by the Holy Spirit to be at this place at this time. He is in direct obedience to his father and he finds himself at a well in Samaria talking to a woman about living water. She's confused about the bucket situation and his response simply is this. Do you think that there will come a day where you return to this well and draw from it again and again where one day you'll no longer be thirsty? It's as if he's saying, is there something in your life that you keep going back to thinking one day it's going to fix the emptiness inside of you? Do you keep drawing from that same well over and over again? And do you find that no matter what promises you make yourself, no matter what commitments you make about how it's going to be better this time or it's going to be bigger this time or it's going to be more important this time or, you're, or if it's like, oh, well, I, I, if I just get enough popularity, you, you've got a well that you keep coming back to that's going to satisfy your identity. But if you get more followers, if you're more popular, if more people tell you that your dress is beautiful, if, if more people pay attention to you, if more people give you affection, if more people, if you sleep with more people, if you have more relationships, maybe it's, and then you get out of a relationship and you still feel empty inside and then you, you buy into the American right person myth and you go, well, I'm not satisfied, but that's because they were the wrong person. It has nothing to do with me. I was just dating the wrong person. I was just engaged with the wrong person. Once I find the right person, then they're going to be the satisfaction of my identity. And so you jump from person to person to person and you jump from relationship to relationship. You know who I'm talking about. And as you do this, you keep promising yourself what the well is going to do. It eventually will satisfy. And if you get enough success and if you get the scholarships and if you pass the good grades and if you do everything everything that you're supposed to do, and if your parents are finally proud of you, then the deep 
empty, void chasm in your heart will be filled. Friend, do you keep going back to the same well expecting it to satiate you? Have you convinced yourself that if you just tweak this and if you just change that, if you just get more, you'll finally be satisfied? It's a simple question that Jesus asks her, but it is pregnant with meaning. Are you tired of going back to the same well day after day and feeling empty? Jesus already knows something. He's not going to let on to it yet. But he knows something about this woman that she thinks she's hiding. She's playing religion. Some of you know this game very well. God wants to have a conversation with you about deeper things, about the well that you keep drawing back to, the idolatry that's in your heart, the thing that you worship that isn't God, but you've convinced yourself that because you're around church enough that you can get away with it, that the throne of your life has two kings. God can kind of share it with whatever is most important to you. And he cuts through all of the garbage and the facade and the cardboard cutout version of us that we portray at church. And he says, is it working? The woman said to him, let me finish what Jesus says. Verse 13. Anyone who drinks the water that you're drinking is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. That's a big promise. If you seek worth in something material, in this well that you keep going back to, you will never, ever find satisfaction. He's speaking of spiritual things. He's basically telling her, if you keep looking for a material answer to your spiritual need, what, kind of a, what, 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 what are you thinking? How would we ever possibly imagine that the spiritual void of our heart is going to be filled by enough material things? <laughs> what interaction has the invisible with the visible? What interaction has the spiritual with the material? What does it have? He's saying, woman, your deepest need is not that you don't have enough of something. It's that you're not chasing the right thing. And you keep finding yourself coming back to the same well over and over again, right? Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He says, not only will I give you maim chaim, but the, the water that I give you will actually bring other people maim chaim too. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty again and have to keep coming back here to draw water. So she's like, okay, I'll indulge you. I'm ready. Give me whatever water that you're willing to give me so that I don't have to come back here and keep drawing from the well. Jesus' response is phenomenally offensive. What does he say? Jesus responded, go get your, go get your husband. Why? Does Jesus care about social norms? Does Jesus care about the fact that he's already had a full-on conversation with a woman in the heat of the Death Valley with this Samaritan at a well in the romantic scene, and he's called her out on the very thing that she keeps drawing back to? Do you think Jesus cares about cultural norms, that the husband hasn't been here the whole time? No. But he's in this exact same vein. Is there something in your life that you keep going back to thinking it's going to satisfy, but it's not working? Do you know that I have something deeper for you? Do you know that I am able to provide something that your life can't satisfy? 
She goes, oh, that sounds interesting. And he goes, okay, then go get your husband for me. And now she thinks she's off the hook because she's, go, she's going, oh, this guy was creeping me out for a second. He was saying some big stuff. But she says, I hate to tell you, friend, but clearly you're not the prophet of God that I thought you were. Because if you knew me, you would know I don't have a husband. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and you now live with a man who is not your husband. So I guess, yeah, what you said is true. Could you imagine, could you imagine being in the audience of this? Could you imagine the rabbi sitting there and going, I guess you're right, technically, because you've had five husbands and now you're living with a man who's not even your husband. So yeah, I guess. Bro, it's like the deepest part. But here's what I love about Jesus. Some of us are asking the question, how could you possibly crucify that guy? Are you starting to realize it? (laughs) He walks around and he says, you think I came to overthrow Rome? You think that I came that your life would be a little bit easier? That your foreign oppressors would, would, would not be so severe with you? You think this is why I came? I came to talk about the idolatry of your heart, the sin of your soul that you keep going back to. And as a good father would love his daughter, as a good father would love his son, I want to talk about the very thing that eats you from the inside out, that has broken you, that has caused you so much pain. And in this culture, if you were a woman and you weren't producing offspring, or if you were a woman and you weren't sealed to a man, in this sense, especially in a pagan nation, men would come in and when they were done with you, they would just throw you out. You were a commodity. You were a commoditized item. And you have probably experienced after five husbands, almost everything. Maybe one of them was unfaithful to you. Maybe one of them rejected you. Maybe you cheated on one of them. All we know is that this woman's life is plagued. And in a religious context, to have had five husbands and now to, not, to be living with a man who's not your husband is completely, remarkably inappropriate. Now we know why she's getting water at noon. No one wants to be around her. We don't know what interaction she's had with the other husbands of the town, but we do know that this woman, Jesus looks at the deepest part of who she is, and he says, I know something. You keep drawing from the same well, and it keeps coming up empty. Do you want something different? Because I can provide it. Or you can convince yourself that if you come to the well twice a day, or if, or if the well, you put Kool-Aid in it, and then it's going to be a different flavor. But you keep telling yourself, if the water changes slightly, or if I, or if I pull two buckets up at a time, you've convinced yourself that something's going to adjust, and Jesus loves her enough to tell her, it's not going to work. You need a new source. You need a new well. One that's not going to leave you empty. One that's going to satisfy you. One that's going to well up in you eternal life, and then it's going to be taken to other people as well. She responds, I can see that you are a prophet. Verse 19, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place that where you want to worship is in Jerusalem. So what does she turn to? Jesus wants to talk about the thing that she doesn't want to talk about, and she jumps back into religion. She, it's probably freaking out now, right? 
It's like, well, it's, uh, Jerusalem's supposed to be the temple, but we built our own Jerusalem. We built our own temple here. And so I don't know, which one are we supposed to worship in? And you can just hear the father heart of God through Jesus looking at her. And he says, woman, okay? This is a term of deep endearment, okay? Don't go home and tell your mom, like, woman, camp was fine, right? <laughs> but this, in this culture, this, this is a rabbi speaking in terms almost like daughter, beloved, loved one, Woman, believe me, the time is coming. You're not going to worship about, you're not going to worry about this mountain or that mountain. Yet a time is coming, verse 23, and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Hamashiach Hatabo, I know that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Up to this point in Jesus' life, he has not verified with anyone that he is the Messiah everyone's been waiting for. And you've got to get this picture of, of God. If you were trying to validate what you were doing, and you were trying to appease the religious elite, and you were trying to be culturally sensitive to the system that you were in, and you announced yourself as Messiah, you would do so during some kind of a festival. You would do so in the temple to the religious elite so that the men could hear you and that those who were in power would be able to verify what you had said. And that is not our God. Chuck Norris, here he comes. Boom, that's what he thought I was gonna do. He announces himself as Messiah in the middle of Bakersfield to this woman who is at a well, who has had five husbands, who is desperate. She is destitute. She's got nothing. She's got no promise of hope and future in her life. She's been passed around. She's been commoditized. She's been worthless. She keeps drawing from the same well. The women in the town don't like her. Everyone's rejected her. And Jesus goes, you will be the first to know that I am the coming Messiah. And everyone in the audience of this is remarkably offended. And he doesn't stop there. Chapter five, he says, I'm going to feed 5,000 people and I'm going to do so with loaves and fish. And you know, in the Old Testament, your hero, Moses, he was able to do this with manna, but that manna came off the ground. This bread's going to come from my hands. He's basically saying, you know how much you guys like Moses? I'm the better Moses. And then he goes on the Sabbath and the religious elite had said, well, this man, he's been uh, paralyzed his whole life. Jesus walks up to him on the Sabbath, which was completely inappropriate based on Jewish law that they had set up that day in order for anyone to be healed on the Sabbath. Jesus walks up to him and he says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Not only did he heal on the Sabbath, which was against the law of the religious elite, he told the man to stand up, pick up his mat and walk, which was also against the law. Jesus doesn't care. He's like the honey badger. He just like, whatever. He does his own thing. He doesn't care. And every time he performs any of these acts and he speaks and he moves, more people are going, I don't know, you kill him if you want to. <laughs> kill him if you want to. It's not who I thought he was going to be. Kill him if you want to. No, I, was, I heard a story. He was in Samaria the other day. Kill him if you want to. He announced himself as Messiah to a Samaritan woman. Kill him if you want to. We don't talk to women like that. We don't allow women to be part of these conversations. They can't even give testimony in court. And he announced himself as Messiah to her. Kill him if you want to. I don't care. He did what? He healed on the Sabbath? The Jewish elite. Kill him if you want to. We got to get rid of this guy. 
Then he comes in to all the people who are customary Jews, and he says, I am better than Moses. I am the better Moses. And then you know what Moses did? One time he put his staff in the Red Sea, and it parted, and people walked across on dry land. You know what the next story is? Jesus does not part the water and walk across on dry land. He walks on top of the water. You think he just did that for fun? No. He's going, who, uh, who's your hero? Moses? He walked across on dry land. Watch this. Boom, he bounds on top of the water. You know what the Old Testament says? God alone walks on the surface of the waves. What's Jesus doing? He's declaring with every movement, every action, every word, I am king. And he doesn't allow the third situation that we like to put him in. He says, here's what you can do with me. I have claimed to have the power over Sabbath. I have claimed to be able to heal. I've, been, I've claimed to be able to forgive sin. I have said I am the better Moses. I said that I can walk on water. I have told you that the Sabbath bows to me. I've told you I will tear down your temple and I will rebuild it in three days. I have told you that I'm going to announce myself to the Samaritan woman out in the desert. I have told you that I alone, in, in Jewish culture right now, if you go to Israel and you sit down at a customary Jewish table and they have bread on the table, guess how you pass it around? You pick up a piece of bread and tear it off, then you put it back down on the table. If you pick up a piece of bread and you hand it to the person next to you, do you know what you're saying? You're declaring that you're the one who provided the bread. You don't do that. Even today, if you go to Israel and you find someone has a pomegranate tree in their yard, you are legally allowed to walk up, grab a pomegranate and eat it no matter where it is, as long as you don't pick like eight of them and go try to sell them. Why? Because you can't grow pomegranates. God alone grows pomegranates. You didn't make the sun. You didn't create water. You didn't create the conditions, the hydrogen in the soil. You didn't do any of that stuff. So in modern Jewish culture, you can walk up to someone's tree, eat off of it, and as long as you stay put and don't go sell their fruit, you can have it. You want to know why? Because God alone provides food. So when you sit down at a customary Jewish table, you would eat a piece of bread, set it down, the next person picks it up. And if you ever dared to grab the bread and give it to the person next to you, you're saying, this is from me. But God alone can do that. So what's Jesus do? He grabs five loaves and two fish and he holds it up and then he hands it out to people. And everyone's going, that's another statement. You're the provider? Even in the Last Supper, he sits down with his disciples in the upper room and he says, take and eat, this is my body. And he hands it to his disciples. He's declaring again and again, you can crucify me because you don't believe me or you can crown me and worship me as king, but I haven't left a third option for any of you. And people are just fascinated with this dude because he's turned the whole system upside down. He walks on water. He declares himself as the bread of life. Jesus is born in a city called Bethlehem, which in Hebrew literally means the house of bread. Where does Jesus come from? The house of bread. I am the bread of life, Jesus declares. And then here we go. Chapter six, verse 60. We're gonna end with this. Sorry, verse 53. Chapter six, verse 53. Verse 53. 
Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. I am the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and they died. But whoever feeds on this bread, pointing to himself, will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. He's talking to a Jewish crowd who they believed that if you touched a corpse, you were ritualistically and ceremonially unclean. And Jesus walks in front of all these people who have gathered. They want to see the miracles. They want to be, they want to be disciples, but, but they want to be disciples through osmosis. I just want to be, I want to be a spectator. I want to, I'm a fan of God. I want to be around his presence. And then he says, okay, are you ready? If you're not ready to eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part with me. Now, is Jesus literally going, enjoy Right? He's not tearing his skin off and handing to people. What he's saying is, if you want to be one with me and I am one with you, then walking with me, you must be ready to, as it says in the New Testament, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The very words that I speak, the very life that I live, the very submission that I'm calling you to, it must live inside of you. It must be your sustenance. You must want my word and my truths like you want bread and that you want water and that you desire wine. If you don't want that like that, if you don't need me like that, if I am not your very bread and life, if I am just the something in your life or if I'm the nothing in your life, then I am nothing in your life. But if you are ready to full on, throw yourself in the deep end and say, I am one with the king no matter what he says. His way is now my way and I follow him. Then you're ready to follow me. You know how offensive this is? On hearing it, verse 60, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Verse 66. From this time, many of his followers turned back and no longer followed him. Verse 67. Jesus looks at his 12 closest apostles and he says, are you going to leave me too? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom would we go? You alone have the words to eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. This, this is the intersection of Christian faith. It's not when Jesus aligns with what you thought was going to happen. It's not when the grades come out and they are what you expected. It's not when you make the team. It's not when everything's going well. It's that there's going to be moments in your life where Jesus sets up a statue and then drop kicks it in front of you and you're going to have to decide in that moment. And you might go, this is rude. Why would God do this? Why would God set up idols that I have in my heart and then knock them over just to know whether or not he's God of my life? Because he loves you so desperately. 
Because any father, if their son was moving towards something that was going to destroy them, because any father, if their daughter was moving towards something that was going to destroy them, would move hell and high water so that their son and their daughter would turn away from the thing that was going to lead to death. My son one time tried to stick a fork in a light socket. I was feeding my baby with a bottle on the other side of the room. I had a tennis ball near me. I told him to stop. He didn't stop. Guess what I did? Threw the tennis ball at him as hard as I could. Okay? It hit him in the leg. He didn't touch the light socket. But you know what he did? He turned around and looked at me like, bro, what is wrong with you? The adults in the room looked at me like, nice shot. (laughs) There was no question in their head. None of them in there were like, if you loved your son, if you really loved him, you wouldn't let him put that fork in that light socket. How dare you? I'm crawling CPS. Everyone who understands my deep love for my son like that went, yep. I was doing the same thing. I tried telling you to stop. You didn't stop. But I'm not, my, as a father, I don't go, all right, we'll see what happens. <laughs> What's that? Is that 220? Is that 220 or is that 110? Is it 220? That's, that's going to be a big one. That's going to be a big one. <laughs> gonna, the lights, it's going to flicker. <laughs> I'm, this is a true story. This is last night. Last night at 3 o'clock in the morning, my son, um, he has reactive airway disease. He's right there. Um, hi, Bubba. Are you sleeping? There he is. It's Peyton. Yeah, he's okay. <laughs> he's now very uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> at 3.30 in the morning, he woke up, and um, part of reactive airway disease is my kids have what we call croup attacks. So they'll start coughing, and then they're... they're um, their lungs and their throat's reaction to certain allergens or certain onsets of certain sicknesses is that their throat just goes and closes up. And normally, throughout the day, you can hear it, and it's getting worse and worse, so we know. We can give them some kind of like a, a steroid or a dexamethasone or decadrine or whatever it is, and then we can be okay with it. He, he showed no symptoms all day, which means when he woke up in the middle of the night, he woke up with one cough, his airway was closing off, and all he could get out was to say, Dad! And I was... I was in the same room with him, he yelled at me. I ran to the other room. I got his nebulizer. I was going to nebulize racemic epinephrine to kind of get, get his airways open. But he was like still out of it and he was freaking out. He's been at Hume, so he hasn't gotten good sleep and he's really concerned and he didn't really know what to do. And he was pleading with me. I was getting his stuff set up. I was so scared. And as I'm getting it prepared, I know that as, lo- as long as he takes six or seven poles of this racemic epinephrine into his lungs, that it's going to open up, that it's going to release, and it's going to give him away. But then he starts turning colors. He starts turning purple, and he starts begging with me to stop because he's concerned. I'm putting a mask on his face. He doesn't really know which way is up because it's in the middle of the night, and he's very concerned. And I look at him, and I'm, he, he just, he literally, was just, he said, Dad, why isn't it working? Dad, what is going on? And he's trying to push my hand away when I'm trying to give him this medicine. I'm trying to keep him calm and contained. We call 911. The EMTs are like rushing to our room. He's changing colors. I'm trying to get this in his lungs no matter what I did. I started grabbing his head and pushing it there and knowing that this is what it was going to take to fix it. Not once did I negotiate with him. Now, once in the middle of all that did I go, 
what? Hold on. What do you want? How could... I think we should give you medicine, but I'm willing to listen to what you think right now. What do you, I'm not, I'm not joking with you. We had seconds to open up his airways. In the worst situation that, that ever happened before, they'll start throwing up and then they can asphyxiate on their own vomit and you have to intubate them and all this other stuff. It's really bad. And there's no human father heart that loves their kid that doesn't intervene and interject there regardless of any negotiation or pushback, and say, in this moment, you don't know what love looks like, and I do. In this moment, and if all of your other seven-year-old cronies got together and they looked at what was happening, you would go, this guy's like forcing this thing on your face. This guy's imposing his will. This guy's forcing you to do something that you don't want to do. This guy is bringing you into a relationship with pain right now. He's holding your head still. He's doing all these things. No one in their right mind would look at that and go, what are you doing? As his airways open up, I'm sitting there and I'm just kissing him on his cheek and I'm just praying and I'm thanking God that his airways came back open and that everything worked out well and the EMTs are sitting in the room and I'm shaking and it's, like, it's so scary. And, I, and I, just, I thought to myself, how similar is that to what Jesus does for so many of us who keep going back to the same well and drawing from the same thing and, 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 and the very depths of our soul, it's, it's, there be, it's like festering and it's rotting and we don't know way, which way's up and we're worshiping false things and we find God coming into our life and taking those very things away or kicking down our idols. Why? Because he is a God who knows what love looks like even when we don't. For some of us, the most loving thing that God could ever do for you is to take away the idol that you're worshiping that's pulling you away from him. And what you'll find is when that happens, the question is, do you still follow Jesus or not? And you never watch Jesus negotiate, ever. Because negotiation means death for you. Jesus talks to a rich young ruler. The rich young ruler says, I'm perfect, I'm getting into heaven, right? And Jesus, it says in the text, he looked at him and he loved him and he said, one thing you lack, sell everything you have and follow me. It said the man walked away sad because he had much wealth. Jesus did not respond by going, okay, 80%. Sorry, that was intense. Um, If you want to follow me, sell 80% of what you have and then you're ready to follow me. And the rich and ruler didn't go, 50. And Jesus didn't go, okay, 50. The cost of discipleship is high. If any man would come after me, Jesus says, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no negotiation. No one who builds a house doesn't first start by looking at what it's going to cost and then decide, am I going to buy this or not? There's a real character of God that is presented, Hebrews tells us, in the person of Jesus so perfectly. Jesus is the final revelation of the Father to us. This is what God is like. And Jesus finds himself again and again kicking down the idols of the culture and saying, Am I still your God when this thing's gone? And I want to challenge you as as we walk away tonight. The truth of Jesus' life and ministry is he did not come to fit in some box that we've created for him. And when he breaks that box and when he jumps outside of it and when he ruins that box and when he kicks down our idols and when he takes things away from us and when he in his sovereign grace and mercy shows us the truth of the well that we keep drawing back to, when he wants to talk about the, deep, the deeper, darker, more painful things of our life, we've got two options. We either say, this is not what I signed up for. Or we say, to whom would I go?
if this is what following you looks like, then I'm all in. You have all of me forever. As you process this in cabin time, as you talk through this with what you're doing, there is something in your life that wins the tournament of champions in your mind of that which is most important. What if that's gone? Who is God to you now? Or is God just some kind of divine fairy that sprinkles spirituality on your already good life and makes it a little bit better and when it gets worse, you blame him for everything, but he doesn't drive the car of your life. He doesn't steer the ship of your life. It's you, you, and only you. But dang it, when things go south, you better believe you're on your knees going, God, how dare you? How could you? How would you? Is God just some secondary, tertiary part of your life? Good for when things are good and out for when things are bad. Or do you, like Peter, stand before God and go, I'm going to write my name at the bottom of this contract and I'm going to push the contract across the table. I don't know what you're going to write on it, God. I don't know what you're going to give me or take away from me, but my name is there and I am yours. A lot of us start by doing this. God, huh? Give me this. Remove that. Let me live here. Let me marry them. Let me succeed here. Let me do these things. All right, you good with that? If you fulfill this, then I'll follow you. You sign first. <laughs> this is not biblical submission. This is not salvific. This is not surrender. This is not Christianity. This is not following Jesus. This is to align ourselves with the first four groups of people who went, I like the miracles. I like being around him. I like the belief through osmosis. But don't you give me a hard truth, man. And don't you take away the very idol that I've been worshiping. Christianity is to take a blank sheet of paper, sign your name on the bottom of it, and say, all of me for all of you. Write what you want. I'll be who you want. I'll go where you want. You take what you want. You give what you want. My life is yours. May we be a people that don't negotiate with a God who doesn't negotiate with us. He doesn't negotiate because he's stern. He doesn't negotiate because he's stubborn or because he's selfish or because he's proud. He doesn't negotiate because he loves you. And to surrender something in his will and to give you something less would take you away from the life that he has for you. Would you pray with me? Jesus, if we're sitting here and we've got you in a mold, one that we keep finding you breaking, and so we just keep shoving you back in. For some of us, like that, that, that's, that's gonna be our whole life. God, you know, for me, that was so much of my life. You would break my mold and I'd shove you back in. I'd give you another chance to fulfill what I wanted you to do. For so many of us in here, that's what it is. We'll follow you, we'll pray to you until you break that mold. And then instead of reshaping the mold or asking you to build a new one, we just ask you to get back inside. But God, you know in our hearts that if you do that too many times, you're out. Because the truth is, you're not the God of our life. I'm the God of my life. And when you don't do what I want, you've upset the king. You've upset me. God, would you encourage in, in bravery, send your spirit into our hearts and convict us of those areas in our life that we haven't surrendered to you or, or the false assumptions about what you're gonna do or what you're gonna protect or what you're gonna give or the life that we're going to have because we follow you. And instead, would we set our name to the bottom of a piece of paper, push it across the table and say, all of me for all of you, do what you want, take what you want, give what you want, make me what you want. Like, like pottery in the hands of the great potter, you make me into whatever you want to make me into. 
Because until we experience that level of submission, we are not gonna understand you as Father, as King, and as Lord of our life. Jamie, pray. Amen.